And now, ladies and gentlemen, check it out. You've got to start somewhere. The podcast that takes you behind the scenes of show business to prove there's no such thing as an overnight success. With your host, Rachel Corbett. Welcome to the show. Today, I have one of Australia's most loved comedians, a TV and radio presenter, host of the B Team on Sky News, and one of my favourite humans in the whole wide world, Mr. Peter Burner. All right. <laughs> Am I really one of Australia's most loved comedians? Yes. Everybody I ask in every bio I read tells yeah. me that you are. Yeah, but I wrote most of those <laughs> bios. Is there anything weirder? Than when, because this is part of the business, you have to <laughs> write your own bios. Yep. Is there anything weirder than that third person? I just can't no, do it. I don't like doing it. I'm o- overly humble in my bios. Oh, Pete Burns has <laughs> done some stuff, and and then other people are reading. And go, mate, you've hosted four TV shows. You've done this. You've appeared on everything. Oh yeah, but you sound like a knob. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> you say that as a leaf blower <laughs> fires up in the background. Oh, see, this is showbiz. <laughs> this is showbiz. I must mention that this show today is being done from the uh, the attic in my apartment. Seriously. <laughs> what, I, what I don't get is I don't, I've never understood. I mean, I'm not the only person. Everyone makes this observation. But a rake. <laughs> a, a, but, but no, seriously, a, a, it blows leaves. It doesn't even... It doesn't, I know. It, basically, it makes leaves other people's problems. Yeah. I could spend $5 on a rake and rake these leaves up, or I could spend $470 on a leaf blower and just blow them into somebody else's yard. And buy the rake... Ditch the gym membership. Yeah. Buy the push-me-pull-me lawnmower, <laughs> yeah. get rid of the gym membership. Yeah, well, I do hope John Next Door gives that a rest at some point. Is that John Next Door? Yeah, it's John Next Door. There's a lot of noise that goes on around yeah, here. Yeah. I often wonder, and maybe they've employed... Actually, it's, they've probably employed somebody to do the leaf blowing, and now we've got an aer- aeroplane going over the top. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> I mean, we could go and do this on Taylor Square and it'd be quieter. <laughs> really. You know, the interesting thing about this is at the moment I'm doing a lot of teaching about podcasting, including a lot of uh, a lot of coaching on how to get good audio. Yeah, tech hints. <laughs> and here I am doing my very own podcast from what sounds like Ken Artire. Ken Artire. And we're using a sound booth made of fantastic furniture cushions. I like it. And, 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 one, of, and one of Nana's knitted crows. I will put a photo up of, uh, of this setup. I have tried to dampen the sound uh, mm. because I am a professional even though it maybe doesn't sound that I way would. but you know what we're just going to do it like this because you're right this is showbiz sometimes oh. these things go down and to be honest trying to wrangle people to do this show it's tough everybody's got their own things to do they've got their own you know uh, commitments so this is the time we can do this is the time I've got you I could say let's stop it while John gets it you know what no we're mm. going to do it with John in the background when you were a kid mm. what did you want to be when you grew up I thought for a long time I wanted to be a cartoonist. I wanted to. I liked the idea of working from home, drawing cartoons, and then sitting on the train going somewhere and having people giggling beside me as they read what I did. I don't know if I ever had a burning ambition, to, and that's my problem. I've never had a burning ambition to be anything, and I think that's a real problem. I think if I, I envy those people who are so sure of what they want to do and are mm. passionately engaged in something at a young age. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a teacher. I want to work with animals. I wanted days off, <laughs> you know. I mean, it, it, but, but and it felt like a cop-out. It felt really lazy. And now at 54, I'm getting a tinge of regret that I didn't wasn't more proactive 
and and determined and focused. As but a the thing man. about later year regret, I think, is that unless you made an active choice, unless part of you wanted to be more applied and driven and in a certain direction, essentially what you're saying when you get to that certain age and you regret those things is, I wish I ha- could rewire myself as an entirely different person. The reality is, if you went back in time, you weren't built that way. So you- I was lazy. I'm a lazy man. I think that's it. I, le- I left school in 1980. I did the barest amount I needed to matriculate. They, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I'll, I'll enrol in science at Sydney University. How much does that need? 274, so I got 294. You know, just enough to get into science. Spent the time at the pub playing snooker. Didn't go to lectures. Failed everything outright. Got a, I still got the document at home that said fail, 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 and computer science discontinued. Fail. Wow. Failed everything. Left didn't want to be a scientist mm. my school school was not uh, something that I really engaged with uh, and then I got a job as a copy boy at the mirror and then after three months I got a job in an ad agency as in the dispatch department wrapping parcels got retrenched a year later sat around for a while then my parents said get off your ass you've got to get a job and through a friend of theirs got a job as a cadet auctioneer in Newcastle Spent a year in Newcastle, then drifted back into advertising for a couple of years, then went overseas, and it was never really committed backpacker either. It, was, <laughs> it really wasn't. I, you know, in, in hindsight, I probably should have stayed away longer, but I came back early. Why did you come back early? Oh, I don't know. Did you just not know what to I do? I had no idea what to do. I was literally drifting around. And then I got back into advertising, drifted around there. It was never really a great in that you know I mean mm. there was I left one job and I'm sure there would have been unpaid invoices in the bottom drawer from suppliers that they would have found and gone why haven't these been <laughs> I'm just not committed to it mm. didn't give a shit and and then then ended up falling into stand up that's the only thing that, that I the only job I've ever had and I was doing it for free I would go down every night of the week to a comedy club every night of the week day in day out every night of the week and just hang out was good they were, they were dysfunctional people and i felt comfortable around and i felt like a creative yeah you know, i felt like oh i'm an artist i'm a performer do you think that part of that um like my parents just weren't the type of parents who gave me any sort of assistance in how to be a human yeah. or direction did you feel like that were your parents not the kind of people that were sort of paving the way or showing you the way to get to where you wanted I to go don't, or? yeah i don't I think I was a concern to mum and dad because I didn't tick the boxes. Mm. I didn't pick a, a traditional career path. I didn't have a, a focus or I wasn't driven. I didn't do homework. I had to be argued and, and berated into doing anything. I was lazy. I was profoundly lazy. And I, I don't know if that was just a disconnect with nothing engaged me. I don't think the school I went to was particularly, in those days, it was not a school that it cut students to fit the cloth not the cloth to fit the student Mm -hmm. you know and so and and even to this day you know write an article for the paper yeah yeah yeah, right i do i not (laughs) you know do a do a i've got so many unfinished scripts and unrealized ideas for children's books and books and books of drawings and all that finished any no do you get angry at yourself about that yeah i get angry and then another day passes (laughs) <laughs> and and I worry that I'm going to lie down, and it really it's beginning to become morbid. 
Um, and that's a really bad thing to be is that you lie, sit there at 55, 54 or whatever I am and think, you know what, I'm going to get to 70. I'm going to be lying there, you know, taking my last breath, looking back and go, you just, it's one shot. Mm. You collected shit. Mm. You didn't, you didn't, nothing stands out as being, and people go, man, you've hosted four TV shows, you've done radio. Yeah, but, you know, does it really? It's also your... That often looks so magical from the outside looking in because it's such a huge step from sitting in front of the TV watching it to being the person standing on the TV. But in your life, it's a series of tiny little steps yeah, that yeah. eventually get you to the TV, which means that by the time you get to the TV, you haven't taken the leap from being pulled out of obscurity to right. host your own TV show. It's been a lot of years to get there. So it, it sort of rubs the shine off it eventually. You go, oh, well, this is the next it's logical the step. It's, it's the job. It's the job. It's not... It's the job. And I don't want to... I mean, I'm, sound, I'm starting to sound... People go, oh, God, I'm going to slash my wrist if I listen to this guy any longer. <laughs> John pissed off. He, he'd <laughs> had enough. God, he'd he's, had enough. He's... And he was only had half an ear on it over a leaf blower. <laughs> uh, but I guess it, it, like, you don't want to be too... I mean, I'm a bit of a misery guts and I don't want to be either. I, I'm, I'm trying to be less and less. But I think my natural state is curmudgeon mm. I think my natural state is pessimism, you... which is... Which is Unhealthy. But do you think that's why comedy resonated with you? Because there's that sort of curmudgeon cynical sort of view is a comedy angle. Yeah. Well, I had a. I remember I got a report card when I was in. It would have been sixth class or even maybe what they call seventh class now, first form in those days. And the teacher said, Peter is cynical. My mother burst into tears when she saw that. I didn't even know what cynical meant. I had to look it up. And for a long years, I. I, I I thought, oh, it's a bad thing. It's a bad look at the reaction of my mother. It's a bad thing to be cynical. But, but I, And I think there probably is. I mean, Oscar Wilde, you know, the cynic is, knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And I, that's harsh. I don't want to be that because I do see the value in things. So I've, I, maybe I fight against type. Maybe I just fight against the natural level of me, you know, and, and other people have in, embraced it. Like I used to be incredibly angry on stage and I see a lot of it now in the younger comics and I think, yeah, well, that was my act. 20 years ago welcome to it and I, and I and maybe I instead of instead of embracing that and becoming the angriest man in Australia I sort of backed away from it a little bit and thought it's miserable mm. um, and I still I'm still a cynic but I think a cynic with a sense of humour is more interesting more fun to be around than just a a moany guy which I'm starting to sound like now <laughs> really moany guy <laughs> Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. Hit the, hit the erase button. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Can we start again? I always wanted to be a clown. I was a happy, happy child. I worked hard at school and made a conscious decision to be an entertainer. I didn't drift into anything. It was absolutely the plan. But this is the great thing about having these kind of discussions is that this is the bit of the business that nobody ever talks about. Because mm. most of the people see the funny guy on stage, and my experience is that most of the people that I have met, in myself included, there is something painful or difficult or something that fuels the part of them that got on stage in the first place. Absolutely. You know, for me, I I guess my a lot of my family say that I was, you know, my auntie always says that she, she'll never forget the time I was five years old and told everybody to come into the lounge room and um, put the, you know, ottoman behind the curtains in the lounge room. It was stood up on it, tore them apart and went, a funny thing happened to me on the way to the studio. I mean, I don't really? yeah, I don't know where right. that came from. So my auntie always said, "Oh, we always knew you'd be doing something like this." But for me, 
I I remember distinctly it being when my parents broke up, all I wanted to do was get on stage and do drama. and do, like wow. I had this reckless abandon of I don't care if I make a fool of myself. Like I wanted that high yep. of getting out there and, and taking risks and doing that sort of stuff. That was the catalyst for me, you know, during that shitty time to sort of push myself onto stage. And I think mm. a lot of – I've never met a performer who goes, you know what, it's just been a real easy ride for me. Yeah. Happy childhood, really happy life, don't have a worry in the world, don't have to, like I've never met anybody like that. We it, do dwell on our lives more than other people. The other people, uh, part of me is very envious of those guys that have a job, they go to their job, they come home, they have a beer with their mates, they go for a bit of a fish, they come home, they hug the family, they pat the dog, they sit down, they have a beer and it's all, and, and they don't, there's no existential angst in any mm. of their life. I spend my whole life tortured about my whole life, you know, mm. and it can be draining. It's physically draining. You think, oh, mate, just have, get some friends. Go out. <laughs> you know? And the interesting thing is that there are some of those guys going home patting their dog that would kill for your life. Yeah. You know, yeah. that would kill Well, the... they, they kill for what they think that life is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for the experience of being on TV yeah. or those kind of things. That... See, people say to me, you know, oh, it must be very hard to do stand-up. I would say doing a 40-hour week is harder yeah being responsible for a payroll yeah much harder having a job and 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 paying the insurances and having meetings much harder mm. than what i do i've got to work tonight for 35 minutes 40 <laughs> minutes if i'm having a great time i'll do 10 for free you yeah. know and that's you know and for that i'm you know someone's going to pass me some money folded up in the palm of their hand <laughs> and i'm going to go when i get home i'll unfold it and it'll be 50 bucks short that's the, <laughs> you know but it's it's it look it's and I but unfortunately you can't do that every night of the week in this mm. country anyway I certainly can't I can't do it every night of the week so I can't make a living that way why I did it especially when you were talking about being on stage I think for me it was hiding in plain sight it's it's one of the few places on the planet that I am at peace is mm-hmm. in front of total strangers and there's something I'm sure Freud would have a field day with the fact that you're the the, the most the best relationship you have is with 100 total strangers yeah but. You know, the Zorro thing is you turn up, I speak, and then I go. I've never been one for hanging around afterwards. I'm awkward around people. I don't, to borrow John Lovett's line in The Simpsons, I don't take praise very well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't. It's, I, it's like, this is what I, I'm here. I've said what I need to say. Goodbye. I'm, I'm gone now. And then I walk by myself back to my car and drive by home and watch episode of Law and Order. And it's not, it's not showbiz. I think there's a lot of people like that. I often, you know, friends of mine don't understand how I feel because I'm the same. I feel a lot more comfortable in front of 100 people. And the, the thing for me, I have massive social anxiety. If I walk into a room of people, like a, any kind of celebrity, a red carpet event, kill me. Yeah. Kill me now. The idea of walking into a room where I don't know anyone and networking Oh, my God. I would rather die. But the reason that I feel more comfortable... That is a big, big thing you need to do in this business. I didn't do it, and you, quote-unquote, pay the price. Networking, kissing ass, being at the party, shaking hands, all that, backslapping. Critical if you want to move to a level beyond your nat- where your natural talent will get you. But you can pick and choose the people that you network with, I, I think. 
I don't own this business. I don't think I think you've got a network. I mean, you know, my wife would say, pick three people you need to talk to and then leave. Yeah. See, I find myself at events like that talking to security. I'd rather yeah, talk to security the and the same. sound guy. I'm so the same. Yeah. But the thing about being on stage for me or doing any of that kind of stuff is it makes me feel like I have a purpose in the room. Mm. Whereas when I'm floating around, I don't feel like yeah. I have a purpose. Yeah. So I think people are thinking, what am I doing here? Nobody knows who I am. Why I'm going to. Exactly. But when you're the person, the bloke up there sort of, you know, you've got a reason yeah. to be. Yeah, I'm meant to be here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm meant to be here. I'm supposed to, yeah, that's true too. I think that's a, a real truth that it makes you feel like you've got a purpose in the room. Mm. I totally get that. How did you fall into comedy at first? I came back from backpacking overseas, which, you know, and that's the curious thing about that. For me anyway, it was sort of escape to find myself or whatever it was or to, to, to see... To, to, to distance myself from this and it turns out you're there all the time so the, hey guess what the reason everything is the way it is is you <laughs> yeah. doesn't matter where you go yeah. you know so I came back and I fell into the same job pretty much in the same routines that drove me to cast, cast the dust off my shoes and see the world young man and I thought you know and it wasn't bad it's not a bad existence you know I was earning okay money in advertising I wasn't in the creative department but, and I wasn't really thrilled with what I was doing I'd go home, I'd sit in front of the television, you know, punch cones, watch TV, <laughs> go to work, come home. It was, a, you know, you know, it could have gone on ad infinitum. And then I thought, I want to get out of the house and do something. And I'm not a, a joiner. I, don't, I didn't go to the tennis club or go to the yacht club and I'm going to sail and fish. So, and then I remember I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll go and do open mic night because it felt a bit like bungee jumping. I'll do that, tick. You know, and I rang them on a Monday or Tuesday. I rang them, on and I said, "When's your open mic night?" And they said, "Tomorrow." And I said, "Oh, can, can I put my name down?" They said, "Yeah, come down." I didn't have any material. I just thought, "Why not just go?" So I turned up at the comedy store in Margaret Lane, in the original comedy store, low ceiling, great venue. Mm. God, I miss it. Great venue, and Adrian Norman was the MC. All a lot of my mates and we're sort of starting at the same time I don't know if they were all on the bill but I know Akmal was starting then was, was sort of start, new on the scene then James O'Loughlin was new on the scene then and I got up and I did five minutes and I got laughs I don't know how I got laughs but I got laughs and I went to the bar afterwards I'm sitting there and Adrian Norman came up to me and said you did alright stick at it it's alright you got laughs what did you do? What gear did you do? Or did you just get up there and make it up as you I went think, along? I remember the first thing I ever said on stage, it was at the time of um, the Satanic Verses. Oh, and yeah. every comic was doing jokes about Salman Rushdie. And I got up and the first thing I said was, I'm not going to say anything about Salman Rushdie. Right! <laughs> oh, well, that's easy. And then I, and I just, I don't know if I had any material. I had a couple of ideas and I, and I, and I did, and it's a hard five minutes, legs shaking, sweat coming down the brow. It's a long time. But I was hooked. I was hooked. I was, and part of it was also I wanted to go back. I wanted to see what was backstage. And at the end of the day, it's some brooms and a mop, <laughs> not a lot of space. <laughs> but that was that to me was s- sacred ground, and it was it was a behind the velvet rope. You know, it was that. Mm-hmm. And the, the the price you pay for doing that is you've got to go on stage. And then I became just a bad smell around the comedy club all the time. And you go through the process. I guess it's the same now. You would go down and you'd do every open mic and you'd get on Monday night open mic, all the open mic. And then you go to Harold Park and do open mics there. And then and then you got asked at the comedy store to do a, to an unpaid support on a Friday night. And they put you in front of the big room. You know, you think shit, I'm there. You know, and then the, one of the great moments I always remember. And then you start getting a paid gig and this that, and the other thing. 
And I remember, and you're always still sitting on the fringe, and around the table at that time was the Graham Pews, Vince Serrini, Smelovich was around, Alan Glover was around, Rick Carter was around, Anthony Aykroyd was around, Rodney was still around. And then I remember standing at the bar watching the sort of centre table of these comics, and Gra- I remember, to this day, I remember Graham Pugh looked at me, and I've, I'm a big fan of Graham, he doesn't do stand-up anymore, he's a genius. Um, he shifted to his side and said, come, come and sit down. And I thought, I've been invited to the table. Wow. That was a real moment for me. I thought, man, I'm a comic. I'm a comic now. I can call myself a comic. And there's a lot of people in the game at the moment, and I occasionally go down to open mic nights where people who've done three over mics will get up and go, you know, I'm a comic. And I, I feel like I'm not even close, mate. <laughs> Anthony Murher had a great line. He said, stand-up comedy is a 10-year apprenticeship, mate. Mm. Come back in 10 years, then you're a comic. I've done two open mics, you know, as a comic. Get <laughs> not even close. Do you feel like those early days, because I think, you know, the 80s and 90s for comedy, I don't know whether this is classic nostalgia that we all go through, oh, I was better back in the old days. But, you know, the, the years when you had comedy on the TV all the time, your fast forwards, your full frontals, mm. where people were big gig. big gig, like stuff where you can still quote lines from those yeah. shows back then. You all know, the names, a lot of the big names today cut their teeth on that. Yeah. But those were all of the people, you know, too, that were doing the circuit around that time. They all became the radio stars of the late 80s and early 90s. Exactly. And things have very much changed on the landscape now and how things work. Yeah, I think so. I think, well, see, none of the people that I knew as a stand-up when I started had a five-year plan. None of them had a career in mind. It was basically just a group of, you know, awkward social misfits getting together and doing jokes and getting paid 60 bucks and whinging that they got paid 60 bucks but the truth is they do it for free yeah. um, and then then came the Visards and the this and the American scene and you and people looked at it and went wow it's a business mm. there was no there was no management around when we were started you know the, the early managers were just people that went oh, I have a crack and now though it's a business mm. and comics come to it going right this is my plan I'm going to do open mics and I'll do this I'll do festival shows it's got to have a festival show tick 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 got to have a festival show I didn't do a festival show for 10 years yeah Um, but now you do a festival show and then I'm going to get management and then I'll get do the project and then I'll be the morning guy on one of the Melbourne stations and then you know and I'll do this and it's a career plan and it's I look at it and go wow okay I didn't even hear the expression callback for 15 years until mm. someone said, oh, you just you'd see that guy's callback. I said, you know, well, what's the callback? Oh, you know, he did the joke about the dog and then did the, what you mean he talked about, he referenced the joke. <laughs> That's got a name. I didn't know it had a name. Had a name. It's called a callback. Fantastic. All right, I learned something. Um, so it's, it's now much more of a business. Yeah. And there's management and there's big money in it. You mm. know? If you get, um, I mean, you look at people like Carl Barron and what have you, uh, who's a big t- the big, biggest touring act in the country by a long, by a country mile. It's great. I mean, it's 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 big money. Mm. If you sell out the M more, think about, you know, you're you're not a band. You're not dividing it by five other guys in the band. Not a huge amount of overhead. You not and a, a pair of jeans and a, a pair of jeans and a carpet if you want it, and 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 a mic yeah. and a stand, and that's it. No rehearsal weeks. None of that. You rock up to the M more. If you if you're good enough act, you've got two thousand people paying what sixty bucks a ticket. To see you at the end more, do the maths on that. Mm. It's good earn. What about? It takes a long time to get there. But yeah. It's good earn. What about? Um, you know, obviously, comedy 
while some of it is, you know, getting up on stage and having a crack, a lot of it is actually working out which jokes work, retrying material, giving, you know, writing stuff. As somebody who is, by their own admission, someone who doesn't like to sit down and work stuff is just a bit lazy, mm. did you work at that no. hard or no? No. I, I, in the, uh, 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 no, I've never been a great writer. I've tried in the early days. I thought, oh, I've got to write stuff. So you sit down and write. Oh. Bored. Yeah. Uh, do something else. <laughs> do something constructive. No, no. Just sit around and pick my nose, watch telly. Oh, so not constructive. No, no. It's not like I was, you know, you know, I was just reading somebody else's <laughs> no, comedy writing. Yeah. I mean, I thought to myself, like, if if I'm doing that, I might as well get a job that mm. pays. If I'm going to be working, I might as well get a job. So no, I. But I did make a a, a point that in the early days of doing the five minute, the open mic stuff, I would get in the car when I was driving to the Harold Park. And I would think, if I can't think of anything to say between now and when I get to the Harold, I won't go on. So I put myself under the pressure of trying to do something different every time I got on stage. And sometimes I would walk on without a thought in the world and just go for it. And some of the best stuff ever comes out of that great stuff, you know, when Bugs Bunny painted himself into a corner and then had to paint a door to get himself yeah. out. That was me. I'd, yeah. I'd, sometimes I would go on stage and deliberately piss the audience off so they would hate me and then win them back I like to surprise myself on stage yes and over the years you develop a box of Lego pieces and you pull them out and you build shapes with different ideas and diff- oh that's I haven't said that for a while and, and that might lead to a whole new bit and some of the bits that I bits that I have now started as one line and then you build on them and I'm sure and other people write like people like Trevor Crook uh, he's, a, he's a writer, Bruce Griffiths. Writers, they write it. It's meticulous. It's word perfect. It's glorious. Seinfeld's like that. I'm a bit more shambolic, I think, in my approach, which makes it difficult when TV say, want you to do five on the Visage show, send us the routine you're going to do. Did you used to have to send routines for that you, kind of stuff? Because you, you did Hey Hey and all that. Did all, I, mm. I have vague memories of Andrew Taylor at the time, I think, having conversations with him going, oh, look, yeah, it'll be fine. You know, Pete, it's, this is what he's going to be roughly talking about. You know, and get around <laughs> having to actually word for word because I can't do word for word. Yeah. Do you have jokes that you used to say in the early or versions of that now are still... Oh, shit, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, and anyone that says they don't is a liar. <laughs> Absolutely. I've got... I've got I, and I don't do them all the time, but every now and then I'll, I'll find myself at a place and I'll do a bit and I'll realise I wrote that bit in 1997. Wow. You know, so it's coming up to its 20-year anniversary is a bit, but it's still a good bit. It's you great. know, it's funny because I was watching a, a tape of an old episode of Backburner from 2001. Right. And I, I wanted to actually ask you about, because obviously comedians, you know, you're, you're writing, you're crafting material about uh, stuff that is relevant in the day, right? You know, everything's sort of topical and, and stuff that's going on. So over the years, you sort of, you know, you, you kind of across all of the major mm. sort of stories and issues of the day. And I wondered whether you thought that we have just been having the same conversation for 50 years yeah, because the 2001 episode of the ba- of Backburner that I watched let me guess terrorism immigrants asylum seekers yeah yeah your opening monologue was about asylum seekers yeah. then there was a sketch about union bullying yeah. and one about the ABC being biased there you go. <laughs> it's yeah. it's today yeah. it's the same you basically we learn when you do things like Backburner and and the and the B team and things like that. it's the same news, it's just happening to different people. That's it, in a nutshell. I remember just standing on a roof and talking about, this is 2000, it must have been 2001, and doing a rant about um, 
I don't care where you come from. Basically, you come over, just leave that shit from over there. Over there, this is not the you bring. You come here to, to leave that behind. Don't start bringing and, all, and this could have been happening today. Could be exactly the same bit. In fact, I can still do material from then about, and I still do about terrorism because it's guess what? It's not going anywhere. This is the great thing yeah. is that you've got a whole bag yeah. full of stuff yeah. from two thousand and one that you can wheel out at any time because it's the same conversation we're having all over again. I saw an again. article the other day recently. Someone goes, you know, the problem today is that uh, is that the enemy is confusing. We don't know who the enemy is because we don't. Uh, there could be anybody. And I thought, mate, let me just show you <laughs> this bit I did to camera in two thousand and about how, you know, we miss the Nazis. You, you knew where you were with the yeah. Nazis. You'd see six Nazis coming over here. you think, there's trouble because they wore uniforms. You got it. They were the Nazis. <laughs> it was a simpler time. Now, who knows who the enemy is? That was 2000, two, year 2000. Yeah. And we're still, people are still going uh, profoundly as if it's a, if, if it's a, if it's a startling revelation, revelation today. It's the same news, just to different people. How did that move from the comedy stage to television happen for you? That was um, courtesy of Jim Burnett and Graham Pugh. They, um, I mean, I'd done the, the Hey Hayes and the Steve Vizards and the Midday Show. Mm. <laughs> oh, the Midday Show. I did the Midday Show where I walked out. I still remember what I was wearing. You know, you make those bad fashion choices. I think, oh, shit, what the hell was that? What were you wearing? Oh, I don't know. It looked vaguely velour. And I thought, oh, what? God. What is that thing? Why did you think that was good? And you, and in the early days of stand-up, I went through all sorts of things. You know, I started to wear a suit at one stage. Oh, of course. I wanted to be the only suit wearing. Really? I remember one <laughs> night at the comedy store uh, in, when it was down at Jamison Street, going out and rubbing my name off the chalkboard and tr- trying out different last names. Oh. I didn't want to be Pete Burner. No, no, no. Peter Toon. No, no, no. And then I'd come out, Peter Jackson. No, no, no. And all, I did that all night. I kept changing my name to see which one suited, which wow. one was a good stage name. Shows a lack of confidence <laughs> in itself, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. um, so the transition. So uh, Jim, Jim and Graham had been asked to develop a television show that was going to be pitched to the ABC. And Jim, God bless him, one of the greats, he called me in and said, come and help create write this to format this develop this it ended up becoming Batman and then they were saying well you know we need a host and Jim said well he should host it and I mean I was nobody mm. he should host it and they went oh what really yeah yeah get him to host it and then they actually auditioned me I think Sean McAuliffe auditioned for it I think I don't know uh, but and they said oh, I'll give it to him I think it's because I was a bargain you know, a bit of a writer a bit of a performer <laughs> same bargain basement price uh, and so, and then they they decided. Well, I think the name Backburner. Oh, that's got a ring to it, and, and voila, you become a TV host. And that's again, it's sort of like you you originally commissioned for thirteen eps, and you only assume it's ever going to be thirteen eps. So you don't you don't plan ahead. You don't in this business. You can never go right. I've made it. That's it. Easy Street. Going to go and buy a house on the water. Four million dollar mortgage. Mm-hmm. Sweet. 13 eps, then another 13. And they only commissioned them in 13 eps, so you, you're only ever 13 eps away from being out of work. Yeah. Uh, but it went for two and a half years. And through through then, you get a profile, you get on telly, you know, then you get started getting booked for corporate work. Um, you, you know, you, you, you're at pains to point out that I was just as funny when I wasn't on telly. Yeah, but you're on telly now. So yeah. you, and that's a big, the magic glowing box is yeah, a big thing huge. in this business. You know, mm. you, you get, and for all the... People, I'm a YouTube star, yeah, mate, but secretly in your heart you want commercial TV. Mm. Even though you think commercial TV is dying, yeah, but you still want it, mate, because that's the stamp that mm-hmm. means you've made it. doesn't matter how many YouTube hits you get, 
you still want Channel 9 to say, we want, you know. And then I got uh, Triple M, and then the ABC came back and wanted the Einstein Factor, and I did that for six years. And in hindsight, I probably did it for about four years too long. Yeah. Because you, you get lazy. You think, oh, regular gig. And mm. they booked, they renewed that for a year. You think, oh, wow, that's 40 weeks' work. And you think, okay, that's 40 weeks' work. And then I got lazy with stand-up, and I thought, well, I don't want to go down to the to the hotel and at 9 o'clock Get on a Friday 50 bucks. night for 50 bucks. Mm. Not that I wasn't passionate and, and loved stand-up. I, again, I'm lazy. I thought, well, I've, done, I've earned my earn. I've done mm-hmm. my wage. And and that's a big mistake. If In this business, if, in, if you're going to be a stand-up, my advice to you, you keep that balloon in the air at the same time as you do other things because the other thing may fall down one day and you'll always have – you cultivate that live audience. you got to feather your nest. Got to. Got mm. to. Got to. Uh, yeah. Do you think part of that – because I know a lot of people that I've worked with uh, who went through that sort of particularly 90s uh, era, particularly in radio. Radio was king, could like they were batting the advertisers away, mm. money was flush, you know, people didn't have Netflix and a million mm. other distractions. A lot of people, I've worked with a lot of people in the past who went through that time and weren't smart about that time because they thought it would last forever. Uh, and while, you know, there's a nostalgia about it and I think to myself, gosh, what an incredible time to work in the business. At the same time, I started in the in the time where it's like, you're lucky if you get one year and this will, you know, you'll probably be back at law school mm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. doing doing what you thought you were going to do. So that kind of message gets drummed in pretty quickly. So you always kind of feel like, oh, shit. I better try and make yeah exactly I'm on borrowed time do you feel like while that time I'm sure was meanwhile it's is every plane leaving? Yeah, no, they are. They're pretty much leaving now. All leaving now. Is, is it just at this time of well, day? It's school, it's school pickup in the eastern yeah, suburbs. Right. That's where they're they All going. All the private planes yeah, are going it. to the private schools. Um, but do you, you know, while that time was exciting, do you, do you feel like it almost gave you a false sense of what the business is? Do you think you bought into it Yeah, too no, much, I, I never did. I probably should have, but I never did. Mm. I was never... I mean, the, the money was good. I was on the tail end of, of that. I mean, there was it was bigger when I before I got there. In the he, in the heydays of Sydney radio, uh, you know, when I was listening to it, when Doug Mulray ruled the waves, and he did, he, it was enormous. And the model, I think, was different. Doug and I know Doug slightly, and I know the people, some of the people he worked with better. He provided content that you, the listener, enjoyed. And, and Denton was the same. He created content and you would listen to it. And then the model in radio changed where it became user-driven content. So where was the best place you've had a dump? Ring us now. And then the, and the, and the jocks would respond, oh, I, you know, Neville from Wright, oh, I took a dump once on the Harbour Ridge. Oh, yeah. And then you'd do jokes about that. Yeah. You didn't provide content. It was a conversation. The model changed. Mm. Um, and, and, and radio started to change too in that they started to remove the stranglehold the personalities had so Kyle is probably the last and, and Hamish and Andy as well I guess their personalities which means that you've got to buy them yeah whereas I was part of that cage model eminently interchangeable parts <laughs> the, the cage <laughs> yeah. is an idea the yeah. cage it's like it's like a computer you remove that and you push in a new component yeah whereas the Andrew Denton show was the Andrew Denton show. Mm. Doug Murray was Doug Murray. Kyle and Jackie O was Kyle and Jackie O. But that's when you end up with the grill team and the cage and the breakfast crew and the this. Eminently replaceable talent. Yes, But yeah. the overriding brand remains the same. And I think radio started to – I mean, they've gone a little bit back the other way now with 
because they realise talent is king. If you find someone who the audience love, like I.E. Hamish and Andy, sky's the limit. You know, they ask what they want and they get what they want because they bring people to the radio station. But basically, all these mediums, TV and radio, are just bits of content separating ads. Yeah, exactly. You know? You're the exactly. bits between the ads, really. For you then, the way that you work and come up with content, radio must have been a great fit for you I because love, that I is the great it. joy of live let's just see what happens yeah. let's prep what we're going to talk about and when we're in there let us see where this ball goes see where it goes and it can only be as good as it is in that moment and yes i could go away and think about it more and craft it and rewrite it and redraft it and what have you but that's work yeah let's just turn up and and say some funny stuff and hopefully it's funny and could, yes it could have been funnier probably but right now right here right now it's gone now mm. um it was a great i think it was tim smith once said um, the difference between radio and television is in television, the lawyers say, you can't say that. And in radio, the lawyers say, wish you hadn't said that. <laughs> exactly. and, and, and there's an immediacy to radio that, that I much prefer. If I, you know, People say, which one do you prefer? I think stand-up first and foremost. Radio is akin to stand-up as close as you can get. The B team is a lot like radio in that yeah. it's little oversight. There's no rehearsal. There's no, it's live to air. So what goes up the stick is out the stick. And good night, everybody. And as we leave... People are already moved on to the next thing. Yeah. You're not standing around going, champagne, everyone. What a fantastic... <laughs> Let's have a rap party every Friday. Have a rap party. Yeah. People, the journos have moved on. Yeah. You say to you know, Caitlin produce, you go, bye. And she goes, yeah, you're bye. I'm on to something else now. You're, you're dead to me. Um, and I love that. That's just, okay, all right then. Uh, but TV, the, a lot of TV crawls up its own ass of its own self-importance. Oh, to be magnificent, we made television. Mm. And it's such a... Uh, I don't know, you're so... It's so overthought in a lot of ways. And I think one of the great things about coming up through radio is that you find... It, it's, it tends to be that natural progression of ending up in TV or radio. You know, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's one of those natural crossovers. But I often find when I do stuff in television, you know, it's the radio that makes me good on TV because you think, well, the set could fall down around us and we'd still be able to keep having a yap. But it's it's also frustrating because you feel like you're in a straitjacket sometimes on the telly. Yeah, you're yeah. just like, oh, why do I have to? Th- mm. What do you mean? Mm. Just let do it just- again. I don't want to do it again. It was great. Yeah, yeah you just fluffed it. People fluff stuff. Yeah, you know they do that. <laughs> yeah. It's normal. But I, I mean that that skill of of being able to dance on a moving rug mm. is. Because I'm I'm not the prettiest person on the planet. I've got banjo players' teeth. My <laughs> eyes are too close together. My ears are deep. So I'm not pretty. And and in a lot of corporate world, what have you, they'll hire pretty. They'll hire the newsreader yeah. guy. They'll hire the auto cue guy. The problem with that is they don't dance on that moving rug. Mm. You know, I've I've walked out of it, and I've said that to corporate people. When you hire me, if you hire me, you get someone who can, when the sound shits itself, deal with it. Who's not just going to stand there and go, we have to wait now. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> the auto cues died. I can. I've got nothing to do. So when when they come up to you and whisper, "Listen, the the guy's drunk. He won't be in for ten minutes." Guess who can fill ten minutes? You yes. Know? And that's a skill you develop in that live TV uh, stand up uh, radio stand up environment. Mm. Um, in in back in the back in the day, the Kennedys, the Newtons, the Lanes, and all these guys came from the club scene. You know, they came from either the club scene or radio. So they worked live audiences. Mm. You know, so they knew how to. Do the business if they had to. If the, I mean, I've walked out of a corporate gig once, and the, the lights shat themselves. Darkness, <laughs> twenty minutes. <laughs> yeah, you, you work the room for twenty minutes or, or ten, and you go, "We're going to take a break and come back," and then you do a bit more. But that gives you something to play with, also, something like that. It's also in your blood that you can, this has got to. I've got to do something. Mm. It's in your blood. Yeah, you, 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 part of who you are to 
Showbiz, it's the curtain and the ottoman and hi, welcome to the funny thing happened. You're back to you again <laughs> yeah. at age five. Do you think you've changed over the years? I think I'm a better act now than I was. Yeah. Professionally, yeah, yeah. You can thank the things like Backburner for that and the radio because it, it, it imposed a discipline on me that I was avoiding mm-hmm. and that's the discipline of reading the paper, actually having an idea and thinking, oh, I'll make a note of that. You don't have to write the whole thing out but just a note of the idea. Mm. Um, so there is a discipline that comes with achieving being hired to do stuff um so i'm a better i think i'm a better act and and people often said oh why didn't you go to edinburgh back in the 90s you could have gone to edinburgh i would have sucked at edinburgh <laughs> if i went now i would i don't know i've never been to edinburgh it's pretty cutthroat but but i'd have a better chance of being noticed because my material stronger my attitude stronger my presence is stronger my confidence on stage is stronger plus i don't give a f- so much and, and that's what I take with me on stage, you know. If, 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 you, if you hate me, nothing I can do about that. If you're going to die, make it a quality death and go down, <laughs> you know, really. Yeah. You know. Do you think you've chilled or gotten more negative or positive or...? Um, I think as you get older and responsibilities and life journey and like that, I think I'm a little bit more stressed about career than I was at 25 when I started because who gave a shit? Yeah. Um, but now... You know, I've been doing it, I think, tw- 28 years or something. That's a long time. And it's the longest job I've ever had, you know. And who knew that I have got away with it for 28 years. And each year, and there are times now. See, back in the day, it didn't matter if you didn't earn any money. You, only, you, what, you had your rent to pay and hamburgers and beer. And if you could afford a foil from the crown, you'd be a lucky man. But now you sort of got bills to pay and you got real-life bills. They keep coming in and... So at the end of every year, I sort of add up the receipts and think, oh, f- I made a living. But it's, I'm never confident moving forward that I'm going to make a living. So it's a little stressful. Then part of me thinks, oh, I could get a job at Bunnings. <laughs> I could. I've, you know, you get on telly that way in their ads. <laughs> but get a job at Bunnings and just show people where the nails are and then go home and, you know, pat the dog and hug the wife and watch the telly and go back to Bunnings the next day. And, and You'd really improve their TV oh, ads, I've got to be frank. I reckon I'd be grouse <laughs> in the TV ads. Can you imagine that? You'd kill it. You get an apron and you get store discount. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. Just, part of me, is, that's, I find that very appealing right mm. now because there's a lot of BS in this business and yeah. if you're not wired to play the game, and I know people from my day who've played it extraordinarily well. They played extraordinarily well, add talent to it, great. I might have a modicum of talent, but I never really played the game well, I don't think. But um, I also think there are a whole bunch of variables outside of your control in this game. You could have talent and play the sure. game well, and the timing could be wrong. You could be unlucky. Somebody in the bo- you know in a yeah. position of authority Fickle. could just like somebody else better than you. Oh. You know, there's a million Damn. reasons that are completely out of your control. I know a lot of great stand-ups who've never done oh. anything, and a lot of lousy ones who are Huge. Over hyped beyond their ability. <laughs> yeah. Really. Yeah. And they've got a nice haircut or they've got the right body shape and they've got great teeth mm. and they present well. See, there's, a, there's, there's either people who are comics and there are people who are presenters being comics. And there's a lot of presenters. Mm. Great teeth. <laughs> yeah. But they present. There's a great quote once that I think it was from an episode of Law and Order, but Larry Miller, who's a great comic, you, you would know him from um, the man who ran the dress shop in Pretty Woman. Quote was, a, uh, a good comic wakes up and sees the world as a funny place and a great comic doesn't. 
you know, and I think there's a lot of good comics out there and there are some great comics. Mm. And the great comics are usually a bit tortured and a bit at odds with the world. They, they're at odds with the joint. And they don't, they rub, the world rubs them up the wrong way and they rub back, you know, I think. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about this business? Days off is the best. <laughs> really, the days <laughs> off is the best. The uncertainty is the worst. Yeah. The inconsistency. If you can get into this business, and there have been some phenomenal success stories in this business who get to a point where they're financially comfortable. The finan- If you can get financially comfortable, even if you have a... Uh, like, it's like sports stars and everything else. If you can have a 10-year run and you're smart enough to put it away for a rainy day because it won't last forever and you build enough currency and goodwill with Mr and Mrs General Public that they allow you to be a part of the fabric of the network of the entertainment industry for long enough after your star has waned because your star will. Yeah, of course then you've, you've won the lottery because, mm. because to me that's the, the, the downside of the business as I get older is the inconsistency of it and the uncertainty of it, unless you are lucky enough. And there is examples like Hamish and Andy have cracked it, Rove cracked it, um, Husey's cracked it, uh, Carl cracked it, Jamal cracked it, all those guys, they, they certainly and they cracked it at a level. They went through that level of just doing well to I'm right now and I'm, I have permission to be me forever now. Bert Newton cracked it, Graham yeah. Kennedy cracked it, Don Lane cracked it. There's a lot of that sort of, you know, Rob Bruff, not so much. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know I what I mean? I still see him when I go up to visit the fam in Queensland. He's reading the news. Yeah, that's right. And I, have such a, I have such a soft spot for old absolutely. Rob. Absolutely. And look, you know what? He's, he's a survivor in the business, yeah. you know. And there are, you know, and some would say Pete Burner's a bit like that. You know, he had his, he was in the, on the telly, and some people remember him on the telly. A lot of people don't know who he was. A lot of people, you've got to go to events. You know, excuse me, I'm I'm the I'm the MC <laughs> for the event. I don't I don't have that sort of wow, you're here, open the door. <laughs> uh, I've never been that guy. So maybe I've developed enough that allows me to live a little bit in the psyche. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can get to retirement age, I'll never I'll never pack out the Enmore. I know that if the Enmore was packed, I'd give him a crack and show. Mm. But my name on the marquee, I don't think is going to sell enough tickets. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, you're, you, 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 if you play your cards right, you can, and you and you and you play the game, and a lot of it is down to not resisting, shaking the hands and slapping the back and going to the business and doing the thing, taking and Instagram being, photos, taking the Instagram photo <laughs> and self-promoting, and there's yeah. a lot of that goes on. If you can be prepared to do that and you become a marquee act, God bless you. I'm, I'm, I'm I can provide a good night's entertainment to the nine people that there. <laughs> <laughs> to, the, to the nine pre-sales. And, and they, I love the way they always go, look, we're expecting a lot of walk-ups. <laughs> oh, really? What, 1,500 walk-ups? Would there be 1,500, do you think? No, no not 1,500. <laughs> Should we cancel? Let's cancel. Let's cancel. Cancel it and we'll roll the tickets over tomorrow night if they can come. I've had that too many times. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. All right, we're almost at the end. It's time for the final five. Ooh. Number one, your biggest regret, either could be something you said no to or a gig that you did that you wish you didn't. Listening to other people when I, my gut said, do what I want, do the material I want to do. Sometimes in this business people go, oh, you probably should, and you think afterwards, you think, no, I should have just gone out and done my bit. Do what, do what it is you do. Don't listen to other people. Your dream gig or something that you haven't crossed off the bucket list yet. Oh, I don't know. I've done... Um, you know, my dream gig would be, you know, one night only at the Enmore and it's packed. Yeah. That'd be great. It's not going to happen, but it'd be great. I mean, it could happen if I didn't sell any tickets and put it on for free. <laughs> Even then, I doubt I'd get a full house. I don't know that I'd have that's... to go out and get busloads from the airport and accidentally deliver them. <laughs> 
I think you are harsher on yeah, yourself. I don't, know. I don't know. I think you've got to be you've got to be realistic too. You've got to be realistic, otherwise you'll burn money hand over fist. Mm. Pete Burner at the Opera House. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello. Is this on? <laughs> yeah, mate. We're going to turn it off. <laughs> Is there any one big idea you had in your years of radio or telly or whatever that just never got up? I went to networks in the mid mid 2000s because I used to be an auctioneer and I went to the network and said look I've got an idea for a show where because everybody's got storage spaces now everybody's got these storage lockers and they forget about them because I'd just done the same thing I'd just taken 15 grand's worth of gear to the tip that I'd left you know it cost me 15 grand to store it and most of it went straight to the tip I said I'll go in We'll pull them apart, we'll pull out all the stuff and we'll talk to the punters about it, we'll get backstories and what have you and then we sell everything they've got. They're not allowed to pick anything out of it, we just sell it. They volunteer their space and we sell it and they went, nah, not going to work. Sure enough, storage, Hang on a second. storage wars, porn stars, all that shit came. How's that for pissing you off? Oh, I don't know, it might have already been, might have already, I don't know when it had started in the States but I don't, it hadn't manifested here yet. So. That's my great fear because, like you're saying, you know, I think little ideas on scraps of paper that never get done because other shit comes up yeah. is the story of most of our lives. Yeah. And I think, but it's the same thing, right You've place, right time, con- connections. Absolutely. I've got ideas that I share too often with people. i got an idea for a movie to some bloke in a pub. <laughs> um, yeah. And I've, oh, look, I've had it with jokes. I've done jokes and I've flicked it on and the Simpsons are doing it. You go, you know, I did do You can't go on stage and go, by the way, I did this 15 years ago. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that was my joke then. And now, because of social media, you're, you've got to be... You, in my day, you just have to be funnier than the bloke that went on before you. Mm. Now you've got to be funnier than everybody in the world. Yeah, that's true. Past and present. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, I've got, I've got lots of those ideas. I remember pitching an idea with a mate at exactly the same time. And to its credit, this is just television, it's the gestalt. The working dog crowd did um, Have You Been Paying Attention? I was pitching virtually the same, wasn't... That, that it wasn't basically a quiz show based off the news of the day at networks at the same time. Mm. I was talking to guys by um, when they when they commis- first commissioned the block, and someone at a TV station said, "Mate, there were about fourteen proposals for similar kind of shows floating across desks at the same time. That one just happened to tick all the right boxes and was made." A lot of it's got to do with you might be a genius in your and have a genius idea in your flat in Artarman, but. TV networks don't give blokes in the flat in Artam and budgets to make films. They give it to people with guaranteed delivery, mm. working dog. Mm. You're great, Pete, but they can deliver the project because <laughs> they've got a track record of delivery. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, the guys from Zapruder's other films and what they've got a track record for delivery. They can do it. Pete Burner in his spare room, God bless you. <laughs> You haven't got a, so you've got to you've got to find a production company who believes in it. Mm. You've got to find a production company who can hook into it. And as soon as you do that, nice work, mate. <laughs> nice work, and you lose creative control. Yeah. And the beautiful thing about things like Working Dog, it's a group of people that know and like each other and have grown up together, who support and 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 encourage their and they own their creative vision as mm. a group. Um, and now they are, you know, they're the Beatles, man. We do what we want. They've had a couple of uh, misses, but by and large. Look at the track record that they've done. It is awesome. Mm, Everything yeah. they touch is gold. And what, and the networks would rather have a working dog thing than Pete from his spare room. <laughs> and I accept that. It's Pete from his spare room productions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you weren't doing, if you weren't doing showbiz, what would you be doing? Scratching on the lid of my coffin. <laughs> Isn't that the way the joke goes? Um, <laughs> uh, if I wasn't doing showbiz, I would be Bunnings. Would you be a full time artist? Because this no, is one. No. Yeah, there's no money in that. 
No, no, look, if I hadn't gone, if I hadn't done stand-up, I'd be uh, an overweight executive in advertising somewhere. And going home, patting the dog and hugging the missus, watching telly and going back to work the next day. And maybe, and having said it, might have bought a small stake in a business and maybe now be not working as hard, but, but have a certainty of income. If I gave you $50 million today and said the rest of your life is yours, what would... I would do stand-up and I would paint and make art. I would do less corporate work. I'd still do the B team because I enjoy it, but I wouldn't fret if they said we don't want it anymore. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't chase it so much. I wouldn't care that old mate got a job on radio or that show's being commissioned or his tweet got retweeted more times than your tweet (laughs) got retweeted. Wouldn't worry me. I I would make painting and I would make art, bad art that no one wanted. I would do jokes that some people like and do TV until someone prettier came along. <laughs> and finally, what's your advice for people who want to get into the business? I don't. No, get into it. It's great. It's a great it's great fun. It's unpredictable. It's hard work if you're prepared to do it. Network the shit out of it. Network, make friends. Um, if you want to be a remote angry loner, you end up you know, talking to a microphone between two freedom furniture cushions and Nana's rug over the top. With planes going <laughs> with over planes every going two over. seconds and John leaf blowing yeah. next door. Who's probably more content with his job than you are. That's no, it. It's, it. Yeah, you just got to do it. I reckon do it. You, you, look, that, that was one of the motivations behind me originally is that I sat down one day and thought, I know what advertising is like. I know what this job's going to be like as it plays out. I always thought, if I, if I, and when I gave up advertising, I'm going to be a full-time comic. I fully expected it to last a year and I could then look back in years to come and go, you know, I spent a year being an artist, being creative. And I've, you know, stumbled upwards ever since. You're still here. Still here. You're still in here. Bet- in between the cushions. <laughs> in the heady heights of stardom. In the heady heights. <laughs> this is stardom, baby. And I'm about to walk up to the train station. <laughs> uh, Peter Berner, mm. thank you. You're welcome. For coming in, chatting about your life and all of the ups and downs mm. of showbiz. Edit it kindly. <laughs> I will, I promise. Yeah, be gentle with me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thanks so much for listening. And if you've made it all the way to the end, that means that you survived the ambient noises. I tell you, it was like the world was against us. Every single thing that could happen in the neighbourhood happened, but sometimes that's just the nature of show business. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review wherever you download it. You can head to you've got to start somewhere.com if you want to check out the show notes pages for any of the episodes or have a look at some of the other people that I have interviewed so far. If you've missed them, make sure you subscribe to the podcast as well so you don't miss an episode and if you would like to make your very own podcast you can head to podschool.com.au which is my online podcasting course that takes you through everything you need to create your own show potentially with the sounds of wildlife in the background uh, next week i am talking to sylvia jeffries the newsreader from channel nine's today show she talks to me about her career and the path that she's taken to get herself on the desk at the today show one of the most coveted jobs in television and the fact that on the road to a gig like that not every job is great i think potentially my lowest point <laughs> oh, yes was <laughs> i love sentences that begin uh, like that <laughs> a dog fashion parade oh. in brisbane <laughs> one of the galleries was had some kind of valentino exhibition so they ran a fashion parade for your dogs and you had to dress them in red for valentino oh, and i had God. to do a full one minute 20 package on 
the dog fashion parade and which one stood out from the rest. How many cliches do you think? Oh, I can't even. Do you know what? It actually pains me to think about what that script was. I'd love to go back and find it actually. Probably. I should have dug that out for you. That's there the was, one thing, oh. though, is kind of, it's rain. It's, thank goodness it's not raining cats and dogs like, here because. Like, oh. It's Victoria Corningstone, <laughs> you know, the cat fashion parade. And here I am actually doing it yeah. for an actual news story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've all got it, but it's all part of we the We laugh path at Anchorman, yeah. but we all have our own Anchorman <laughs> moments. I hope you'll join me for that interview next week. Thanks so much again for listening, and I'll see you then.